So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Friday, September the 9th, and this is episode number 174 of Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is The Way to Be. So I want to thank you for being here on this Friday, and I hope everything's going great for you. If you want to know what we're going to talk about, please look down in the video description below, and you'll see line item by line item the topics that we're going to cover today. We have a lot of them. I thought I had a short list today, but apparently I was wrong. And uh, another thing, I want to thank you guys, those of you who have uh, subscribed to me through the years. I have produced over 900 videos on YouTube. I know, that doesn't seem right, but it's true. Over 900 videos. And guess what happened this past week? We went over 120,000 subscribers. So if you're a subscriber, thank you so much. If you're not a subscriber and like 70% of my viewers don't even subscribe to me, and maybe that's because you don't have a YouTube channel. So let me just give you a real quick rundown on why you should create a YouTube channel. It's not just so that you can put your own videos out there, although that would be fantastic. But it's also so once you register with YouTube, which is owned by Google, and you make your YouTube channel, this lets you give videos a thumbs up. Or it lets you subscri subscribe to people like me. Or you can also create playlists and things like that. So you don't have to remember all the videos that you've watched. You create your own playlist and there you go. When you log into YouTube, you don't have to tell everybody about yourself. You don't have to make videos. I know that that's a pain for a lot of people, but creating a YouTube channel, which is connected to your Google um, Gmail account, for example. So if you already have that, then it's very easy to log into YouTube and create your own channel. That's enough for that. So what's going on outside? Well, this morning it was 46 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 7.7 .7 Celsius. And the reason I bring that up is because this time of year, we're in a period of rapid temperature fluctuation here in the northeastern United States, because right now it's 79 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 26 Celsius. That's a 33 degree rise. And that's why some people have already drawn off their honey and uh, they're already putting things together and they're trying to get their bees ready for winter early depending on how far north you are or how cold it is wherever you live and when we put these inverted feeders on uh, but doesn't matter if it's a bucket feeder some kind of tank like the bee smart designs use or if you're using the mason jar that turns upside down the amount of free space inside those jars gets the most effect from temperature changes. So if it's half full and is a gallon container, then as things warm up outside, it creates pressure inside that tank. And what happens? It's going to express your sugar syrup right down into your hive. And a lot of people will say, yeah, but the bees can keep up with that and so on. And maybe they can, but it's just food for thought. So for example, smaller containers, more frequently filled, will have less of an impact on your hives this time of year when we have those rapid temperature changes. Because as we go into nighttime, and those things sit on top of your inner covers, they should have a feeder shim around them, and then of course your outer cover of your box, your hive, on top of that. So that space, the temperature really can fluctuate quite a bit. So, it gets cold at night, they draw in. That's not a problem. The problem comes when morning comes and all of a sudden things warm up really fast and now they're expressing all that sugar syrup down onto your bees. That's all I'm saying. Food for thought, smaller containers, less of that action, 
or if you keep them full, also less of that action because it's based on the amount of air space inside those containers. That's enough about that. And uh, do, 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 do. if you want to know how to submit your own question, please follow the link down in the video description, which takes you to my website, thewaytobe.org, and you can fill out a form there. In fact, that link takes you right to the page. You scroll down, there's a form, and you can remain anonymous, which one person did this time. In fact, I think it's probably the first anonymous request I've had. So let's get right into it because we have a lot to cover. The very first question comes from Ross. Pittman, New Jersey. I had a question concerning hive gates. I'm in New Jersey, South Jersey, zone four. And I've been using two hive gates all summer and I plan to reduce to a single gate for winter. Do you have a suggestion, date, temp, seasonal sign to reduce to one? So for those of you who don't know, this is a hive gate. It was in the cover image today. And I'm gonna talk about that in my fluff section at the very end. So if you're wondering, are you being robbed? You'll learn about that at the very end. Anyway, the Hivegate by BIQ Solutions. We've been tracking this for over a year and a lot of people have them on their hives. A lot of people have still never heard of them. So the studies are still incomplete, I'm sorry to say. In fact, the survey that we put out has still not been published. So one of the things that it gets used for also, among other things, there's thermal dynamics inside your hive and everything. There's a lot of complexity, a lot of moving parts as to what the benefits of a channel like this leading into your hive could bring. But uh, the configuration, there's a metal plate that comes with, oh look, I just happen to have one. This metal plate is an option when you buy these. Now, the inventor of this, Kyle, thank you very much. Uh, may not like what I'm about to say about the metal plate. This thing is uh, carbon steel, so it's magnetic. It is galvanized, so it has corrosion resistance. And uh, you'll notice that it has an option here where you would put two of these hive gates right in it. So it goes like that. You have two of them. And then on the inside, you move this part underneath your cluster. And then you could flip it over for what would be the winter setting. And then you have a single hive gate like this. And then that moves. And uh, that's pretty much it. This mounts to the front and you put screws in it in front of your hive. So it could fit an eight or 10 frame landing board. And when you go to the 10 frame, this plate is also not wide enough to take up that space. So now you have to add your own little closing elements to make sure that your bees can't get out around it. Here's what I'm doing and why I think, you know, Kyle may not be happy about that, but I'm just going with the wooden entrance reducers. And then when you look at these hive gates, see the width of this rib right here? That's the width of the opening that you make in your entrance reducer. Oh, look, I just happen to have a tape measure handy. Just going to get a quick measurement on that. So how wide should your opening be to accommodate the hive gate through a wooden entrance reducer? So I'm going to call that two and five eighths, just over two and five eighths of an inch. I'm sorry I don't have that in uh, centimeters. But uh, then the height of it is three eighths. So this actually matches what I've been recommending for the height of your entrance reducer. So you should already have these cut out in your entrances if you have them. And uh, then again, the width. Uh, so the width also matches that, but you would wanna make that under, you know, two and three quarters of an inch in width. And then you'll have play in it, see? 
And the reason I mention that too is when you slide this in in the winter time, because that's what we're coming up to, you'll be able to get in here and there's posts on this that you could put a screw through that holds it as a pivot, right? So I also don't put the screw into that and I'll tell you why. It's because in the winter time, I take this hook, which comes from Be Smart Designs, and this fits into your hive gate. You can go in here and you can hook that post. You pull the hive gate out in winter time, and then you can knock out any dead bees that might be in there, do a quick inspection, shove it right back in there, and you're back in business. Some people think that that's not necessary. Now, did I last winter, because I went through a winter with this, did I find one of these full of dead bees that actually required the clean out? No, I didn't. But I found out that I could hook this and pull it out just the same. And some people say that's a total waste of time. And here's what I say to that. If you look in this thing and the one time, the one hive that I pull this out and this would be full of dead bees, let's say, and I pulled it out and shook it all out, I didn't have trapped bees. The one hive, the one time that I find that situation, I really didn't waste my time. So the question is, is it harmful if I get out there and waste my time? hooking into these, pulling them out once a week after a heavy snowstorm, whatever, and uh, do my inspection because the dead bees pile up mostly in spring. So January, February is when we kind of have a die-off inside. When they can't fly, they can't fly, they pile up in here. So I recommend pulling them out, doing that inspection, putting them right back in and trying to center this under where you think your cluster is, which for us would be the eastern side of the box if the south-facing landing board is your setup. So that would be like that. Anyway, so when to switch them down, I say uh, I'm going to singles for all my hives. Because those that have the doubles, I notice that the bees tend to use one side or the other. And it may be different where you live. I know these were very successful in Washington State and helping people defend their colonies against uh, yellow jackets and things like that. So they do that. Robbing is another issue. But uh, it's not the whole story when it comes to the channel. But I go down to singles. The ones that had the singles on through winter, because I did them with singles and doubles so I can make comparisons. If you do it all one way, you have no idea if one was better. Uh, the singles did better. Came out of winter stronger. And uh, so I'm going to all singles. And I'm not going to use doubles even during other times of the year. So I'm going to singles year-round. So if you've got the metal plate, single side down single hive gate and that was more than enough for your bees to do all the things that the bees need to do so that works for me now you're going to be taking honey off soon most of us will be and if we're in the northern this is a zone four so i think that ross is probably going to be taking his last honey draw that's when i make configuration changes so if you're going to be opening your hive and you're going to be taking your supers off and you're going to be packing down for winter time that's a great time to also pull your entrance, put the single in, because it's also a time when you do honey takeoffs, when you pull those supers and you need to go around hopefully and do all your hives at once. But the hive that's been opened has the smell of honey in the air and that's when robbing peaks. So that's when I would go from two to one. Gives them one entrance and also, when the bees line up in here, they do venting very well. They line up nose to abdomen right in a row and they can draw air in or pull air out. And these channels are very efficient for that. So this is actually a little smaller than my recommended uh, 3 8 by 
three inches, two to three inches uh, opening year round and mice can't get in either. Big fat bumblebees can't get in through these. So there's lots of benefits, but so in partnership with whenever you finish taking off your last draw of honey, put these on. That's what I say about that. I know I said a lot of other things right then, but I, I'm trying to answer your questions without you having to ask them. So let's move on to question number two from Linda Sue. Question number two from Linda Sue. Clarksville, Georgia. Is there a smell that a beekeeper should avoid? I always smell like Amazing Grace by philosophy. Is a flower smell good or bad? Okay, so smelling like a flower, that's not bad at all. Now, here's the thing I think about when you go out to your bee yard. The number one sense that your honeybees use in everything they do is pheromone-based. Therefore, they're very keen on different smells. You might wonder, they visually actually can remember us. I've done my own tests, and you can do fun tests too if you want to. If you want to be the center of attention from your bees, I don't highly recommend it, but you could do it. Um, they visually remember, and they remember the smells associated with your approach to the beehive. There are definitely smells you don't want, and I'll explain what they are. One of them would be lemongrass oil. Some people use that to lure their bees into their bee traps, so the swarm traps, swarm collection boxes, and things like that. Essential oils like lemongrass have, uh, they get the interest of foraging bees and scouting bees, and they explore areas that smell like that. I don't know why. So the other thing is there's uh, something called swarm commander. It smells like lemongrass oil, but apparently it's not, according to the people that make it. It's something else. It's much more complicated than that, according to the people that make it. And that comes from the Blythewood Bee Company. So again, so if you've been spritzing around essential oils, this is why I recommend wearing uh, nitrile gloves or something like that when you're fooling with essential oils. Uh, that's because now the bees will come to you and be checking you out. Maybe you don't mind that. Maybe you don't mind bees landing all over your hands when you're trying to do other things. But they seek out these smells. Now I can dispense with a myth. Uh, some people say, for example, that uh, the alarm pheromone from your bees smells like banana oil. So if you're smelling a bunch of banana oil, then uh, you better be careful because there's a lot of stinging going on or there's a fight ensuing or maybe they're defending themselves at the landing board and stinging and, and there's a lot going on. So if you smell banana oil, uh, that could be attributed to the alarm pheromone from a colony of bees when there's a lot of it going out. Now the question is, if you smell like banana oil and you walk out into your bee yard, you just had a bunch of bananas, you're into the potassium and everything that comes from bananas, are you going to be perceived as a threat and get stung? The evidence doesn't support that. So banana oil is not something you have to worry about smelling like when you go into your bee yard. Uh, another thing is a lot of people don't wash their bee suits. We know who they are. We see those YouTube videos and you know, if you're a busy beekeeper and uh, you're working a lot, I realize that your bee suit is going to get dark and grungy and your bee veil, your hat is going to be grungy and it's going to smell like propolis and beeswax and all the stuff that gets sticky on all your gear. And uh, the other thing is when people are working heavy and fast like commercial beekeepers do. They tend to open a lot of boxes in a very short amount of time and they don't have time to pussyfoot around the bees and they're not really 
taking the time not to smush them when they're putting the hives back together or they're moving frames and things like that. That's why they put on full-blown protection when they go into work mode, especially this time of year whenever the honey harvest is on. They have to do a lot of work in a short amount of time, and then what happens is their suits get stung a lot. Their gloves get stung. You'll see them wearing the heavy leather gloves. By the way, cowhide is something else you don't want to smell like when you go into your bee yard. You don't want to have that brand new cowhide leather vest. You don't want to have a brand new leather belt. Even though you just won at the county fair rodeo and you want to show off your fancy buckles, so you got a brand new leather cowhide belt to wear the buckle and uh, the bees don't like the smell of it. That is the most animal smell that you could probably have getting close to your bees. And this applies to the bee gloves that you wear. That's why for those that want better protection for their hands, I recommend goatskin gloves over cowhide. In fact, a lot of university studies, uh, when they're trying to test the defensiveness of a colony of bees, there are two main triggers and ways to test whether the bees will launch a defense against whatever person is checking out the hive. One, strips of raw cowhide. Just lightly tracing it over the top of the hive and see how many stings it picks up. People that do research on defensiveness use cowhide. So the other thing uh, is, so when you've got the rawhide gloves, that pheromone from the bees once they start stinging because that triggers other bees to sting the same site. That's why if you're my grandson and you think it's funny to get your, your little glove stung by bees and you find out there's a whole bunch of stings in close proximity to one another on the same glove, that's because they sting where they smell the alarm pheromone that other bees have assigned when they put their stingers in there. So that's why sometimes when you get a piece of exposed skin, you're doing a little work around your bee yard, for example, and one bee stings you, sometimes it's the experience that multiple bees sting the same hand, the same site, the same piece of exposed flesh, and that's because the alarm pheromone is there saying, sting this person, sting them specifically right here. So, those of you who receive a lot of stings on your bee suits and your gloves that you wear, it's a great thing to be rotating those out because every time you show up with those pheromones still assigned to your clothing, you're going to get an alarm response, a defensive response potentially from the bees that you're about to inspect. So those are smells that you don't want to smell like. Flowers themselves, if you smell like real flowers in the meadow somewhere because you're a florist or you're a gardener of some kind, that is not going to get any negative attention from your bees. Often children will go pick a bunch of flowers and run over and offer the blossoms to the bees thinking that they'll go on them and get nectar and then get the pollen and things like that. Very difficult to clip flowers and then get your bees to visit flowers that are no longer in the ground producing nectar naturally. So that's something else that fails. Covered a lot of ground, short amount of time. Smells to avoid. I would not load up a whole bunch of perfume. Don't be like our sons when they were about to go to school in the mornings and they sprayed themselves with Axe, whatever that was. You could smell that before they even got to the kitchen and their thinking was it's going to diffuse through the day. What does it have to do with beekeeping? I don't know, but it would have been great if the bees stung them when they uh, put that on because it could have saved us all from having to smell it. No slight against any aftershaves or colognes that are being marketed. I'm just warning you about bees responding potentially in a negative way. Question number three comes from Ronald, Philadelphia, New York. Interesting. 
So, since a queen can mate with multiple drones, the genetics of the workers can change within the hive depending on which drone sperm she is using at the time the egg is laid. So, can the temperament of the hive change throughout the life of the queen? What if the queen mates with a drone from a mean hive? Will the workers from this drone line have a tendency to be mean? Will the temperament change once that drone's genetics are exhausted and the queen taps into different drone's genetics? Simply put, can a hive turn mean then turn gentle without requeening? Thanks for your input. Well, the, the hive uh, turning mean, gentle, or defensive generally is assigned to different times of the year. Okay, so but we'll address the genetics part. It's true that when a queen flies out, and she's doing her mating flight. Most people agree that there's a single mating flight. In some rare cases, there can be more than one, but predominantly it's a single mating flight. The queen mates with up to 20. Now, specifically, how many drones does the queen mate with? You know, is it 20? Is it 15? Is it 10 or 5? We don't always know, and it depends on the queen and, you know, how much time she spends in that drone congregation area and how persistent those drones are and things like that. So also, each drone represents its genetics from its colony of bees, which are not from the colony that the queen departed from. So the, the colony that makes the queen when she flies out on her virgin flight um, is not where the drones are coming from. So this is genetic diversity. And so with each drone that mates with the queen, up to 20, whatever the number is, she stores that sperm from those drones in her spermatheca. So, the queen comes back, she's been mated, she has mating sign on her, which I think somebody recently posted a photo or asked about, what is this on the back of the queen? It looks like her abdomen was damaged. It was actually the reproductive organ from the last drone that she mated with when she returned to the hive, so she was not injured. And her retinue of bees will remove that, and it's evidence that she has actively mated. So she's out there, and she mated, and now she's back, and everything is good. Now, so... To answer this question, there are sister workers in the hive. This is very interesting too. It's a point of study actually in bee behavior. So those sister bees inside the hive that come from the same drone, and of course the queen, all of them are coming from the queen. So the variation comes from the drones that they mated with. So that's interesting. The question is, would it change the climate of the entire hive, the entire colony, at points during the year. So the reason I say it will not change the entire climate in the hive as far as behavior goes is because in the spermatheca, it's not a first in, um, last out kind of thing or first in, first out, whatever. The sperm is not organized inside the spermatheca. So in other words, when the queen decides to fertilize an egg on its way out, because a queen can lay an egg that's not fertilized, by the way, that's how she produces drones. So the egg can bypass and the spermatheca does not generate a sperm. And usually it's several sperm, by the way, that she releases towards each egg so that they can produce a worker bee, a female. So when she doesn't release the sperm from her spermatheca, then the egg traveling out becomes... Let me get this right, haploid, so that becomes the drone. Now, when she does fertilize them, the diploid, the worker, then uh, 
several sperm are released at the same time and she does not have the ability to control the order. So she's not picking the genetics. Therefore, you wouldn't on a, the 21st day, for example, uh, 1,500 eggs that she laid 21 days prior to those adult workers emerging, uh, they would not all be from the same drone, for example. So a percentage of them could be, because that's a lot of workers coming out. And uh, this is where you might think, yeah, you get the one or two workers that are out there that just feel like it's their job to attack everything that comes in the bee yard. Just one or two bees out of thousands. So the entire change uh, really doesn't occur from the way the queen is producing her eggs. When there is a sudden change, let's say that uh, the queen is superseded. Let's say that uh, the colony changed queens. Let's say that the queen moved in on the colony and did something called usurpation. So usurpation is something that Africanized bees queens are known to do. They move into a hive with their retinue of very aggressive workers. They kill the queen that's in residence and they do a hostile takeover. And then 21 days after that, because think about it, after the hostile takeover, the new queen, the aggressive line, is now laying her eggs in there. And she's doing that in every cell that she can. And they actually win over the colony of bees. So by defeating any defense they might have. So those that are on guard that day get overwhelmed. And then 21 days down the road, it seems like they make a sudden change in temperament. And we know that on the 21st day, when those developing pupae finally emerge, they don't immediately go to guard duty and things like that. So they have about a week in there where there would be a grace period where we'd see a gradual change but within the second week, that's when you would see their guards on deck. That's when you see a disproportionate response to any, any uh, molesting activity to the hive, like if it's being vibrated or if pets are running by or you start to do an inspection and you find out, wow, I barely had to smoke them before. Now they're all over me. There's 20, 30, 50 in the air around me. And that rapidly degrades. In other words, if it's an Africanized colony, now, by the third week, instead of 20 or 30, you've got three or 400 bees coming after you. And this is because that queen is really the primary source of that hostility that you're facing. So, good question, interesting question, but uh, it would not like flim flam around uh, just because, like I said, the queen doesn't lay her eggs in order. So it wouldn't be like this week, they're all coming from this drone, and next week, they're all from the next drone. So they're really all just mixed together. Question number four comes from Janet, Downington, Pennsylvania. My question is regarding winter preparation. My hives are wooden Langstroth, and I currently have a beetle buster bottom board on each width, and they have really pretty much eliminated the hive beetle issues we have in this area. I installed B-Smart insulated inner covers. My outer covers are standard Man Lake telescoping outer covers. Question, which covers are you using? I plan to add Hive Alive fondant. Can I just put the fondant under my telescoping outer covers in my current configuration or do I need to add a super? I also think you mentioned BMAX outer covers. If I were to get those, am I providing more insulation and 
Could I put the fondant directly under those covers on top of the B-Smart insulated inner covers? Okay, so easy to answer all these questions. The first one is the B-Smart insulated inner cover. That for me right now is the best insulated inner cover that you can put on your hives. What does it look like? I know I've shown it before many times, but in case you're new, that's what they look like. I don't use these the way they come. They're designed to be used with the B-Smart ultimate outer cover that's another piece in fact they sell it as a duo through betterbee.com betterbee also sells these so if i skipped over that and you're looking for how to get a hive gate betterbee carries those i don't use this the way it comes okay so it was designed with this uh, top vent so you've got an entrance this is an optional thing so we have a polystyrene insert here and depending on whether you flip it this way or this way, there's a channel from the center to that entrance, which can be a vent. It can also be an upper entrance. So it's large enough for your bees to pass through and get out. I don't use upper entrances and I don't do upper venting. So I leave it switched around so there is no channel from the central riser, which is your feeder hole. That's the whole purpose of it. Uh, your bees cannot get through here because that channel now goes to the back, which has no entrance on it. So that's step one of what I do. The next thing I do, and this works for a rapid round feeder to sit on that, or you can put your fondant right on that. And I might as well show that. She mentioned Hive Alive fondant. That's what I'm talking about right here. Hive Alive, I experimented with it last year, with it last year, and put this directly on the inner cover. And then all you do is cut a circle just about the size of that central riser hole right here. And that's so that the bees can get up in here. Now the question is, can we just take our telescoping outer cover for Mound Lake or wherever, and usually those are made out of wood and they're clad with metal, sheet metal on top. If you put that straight on this, if you notice, there is some thickness there. That's going to rest directly on this and compresses your fondant. So I recommend you not do that. I recommend that you have either a feeder shim, which can be two or three inches, just a piece of wood that goes around the outside here and provides that airspace here. And that takes the pressure off of this. Your bees do not get up into this space because if you have a rapid round feeder over that hole, the bees get up into the rapid round feeder, but it has a lid so they can't get out into this space. With your fondant, and I just laid these in here last year, the bees get up inside the fondant pack that also prevents airflow from going through here and uh, they don't get up either into the space. Even when the fondant pack was empty, the bees did not like chew up this plastic and gain access to this upper space. I use medium supers as my feeder shim up here. You can use shallow supers, they're plenty deep enough. So if they're cheaper, just get the shallow supers. And then what I do too is I go around these edges and I use expansion foam to seal those up. But the question is also, does it add insulation? Because I put B-Max covers. B-Max are designed for the polystyrene entire hives, but I use the top cover only because that's an insulator also. So the insulation on the top above this doesn't do a lot, but it prevents some of that thermal dynamic that I was talking about earlier. So for example, you know, outside temperatures, it won't heat up the space really fast and it won't cool it down really fast either. So it becomes kind of a heat battery area. But I'm going to talk to you about another material really quick because I discovered it this year and I'm going to be 
putting that in spaces like this and also for the perimeter instead of expansion foam. So what am I gonna use? I recently had a friend that uh, they had their house built and they were using different types of insulation in the house and I've never thought about using this for beekeeping, but you might've seen people using this on the beach. You know, when they're trying to get an even tan, if you look at the way the light just looks great on my face right now, this is called double bubble, double face insulation. Look at that stuff. So here's the thing, I, you know, I got to thinking, now this has nothing to do with home construction, but I was looking at this stuff and see how thin it is. This particular one I think is Reflectix. You might be asking where you can get it. All the building centers carry it. It's super thin. There's a lot of discussion around it. The R factor of this, the resistance to heat transfer for this material is only a one, really. 1.1 or something like that. So as an insulated material, that's, that's diddly. That doesn't do anything. But here's the cool part. If you're putting it in a space that has a locked-in airspace, like stud walls in a house, for example, or if you had a beehive and this sat on your insulated inner cover, and then inside of that, there was an airspace, if you used a medium or a shallow super, and then the circumference, the wall of your feeder shim that's in there could also have this, and you can staple it. There's also something called Reflectex tape, which by the way, just got here yesterday. I'm gonna be putting this stuff in my horizontal hives up in the lids, which by the way, if you've seen my videos, I left them as is because they have polystyrene rigid foam board insulation in them, R10. You can get another R13 out of this when you partner this with creating an, a barrier. So you need an airflow barrier, that's where the tape comes in. And then you have an airspace and you have another layer of this on the top. This stuff is very inexpensive. If you're looking at it from a beekeeper side, a uh, beekeeper point of view, how much of it would you need? You can staple it in place and then seal off the joints with your Reflectex tape. Now we have an airspace in there and we've added an R12 to an R13 with just this while preserving that space so that we can have a feeder in there or fondant underneath. How about that? So that's what I'm doing. I mean, you can, you can make yourself look good for selfies with it. Look at that light, it's just, I'm impressed with that. But anyway, as an insulation material, it doesn't matter. I looked up a lot of it. I did an intermediate dive on finding out the R value of this stuff. Widely misunderstood, by the way, uh, because you need an airspace. And the way this works is it keeps the heat reflected back to the source instead of letting it transfer through. And then of course, dead airspace in between creates that barrier and gives you the additional R factor, the real R value. So double bubble, double faced, aluminized insulation that's what I'm using. Now, if we compress that right between two pieces of wood, for example, so if you had your inner cover and then you just put another piece of wood right on top of it, R1.1, not great. Better than nothing because what is your three quarter inch pine rated at? It's also at less than R1 actually. So by putting this on, you're doubling. That's like having an inch and a half thick material. So even if you had just the R1.1, you just doubled your insulation value. Anyway, the reason I bring that up is the, the wooden 
uh, hive covers with the cladding on them really don't have much of an R value at all because around the sides you have three quarter inch stock because it matches so it sits, it sits over your feeder shim or your top box and over your inner cover. Um, but if you look at the clad portion of it, sometimes that's just Luon or really thin plywood and it has almost no R factor. So the metal cover, just looking around real quick to see if I even have one because I haven't used those for years. I guess I don't have one down here. But the metal cover plus, you know, when the sun beats down on it, that even though it's, you know, it's usually aluminum or tin or galvanized, uh, when the sun hits it, it does reflect a lot of the sun's energy away, but most people paint their hives. But if it's unpainted, those covers, those outer covers get really hot. Guess what would stop that heat from transferring into your hive? Double bubble. So no affiliation. I paid for it. I got mine from Home Depot. You can get yours anywhere. Home Depot wouldn't ship me the tape. They wanted me to come into the store. I didn't go in the store. There's, there's people there. So I ordered this part from Amazon. Okay, so enough out of that. So yeah, but I used the B-Max covers, but guess what? Don't need to anymore. I can go back to, I have a rack of the old metal ones. So, you know, if I use the wooden covers now, plus, let me stay on my soapbox on insulation for a minute. The uh, Flow Hive, I know a lot of people don't wanna hear about it, but they've got those, gal those, got those gabled rooftops. Uh, they're terrible insulation wise. They're very thin, so they look nice. They look fancy. They're great. They're well made. So aesthetically, they look fantastic, but I'm going to go up in there and now I'm going to use those gabled hives, those gable tops, and this is going to be in the inside of it. This is going to be under it. And I've also made a, uh, a shim for my flow hives that will allow for winter feeding, which right now they're not suited for that very much. Uh, you could fit fondant in there, but if you put a wrapid round or you wanted to put any kind of tank feeder in there for some emergency or last minute buildup, you don't have the space for it. But uh, we can insulate with that stuff and uh, be in like Flynn, as they say. So that's it. That should answer that question. Double bubble. Reflect text, whatever. A lot of different companies make it. One, I did not find that one was notably or significantly better than the other. There are industry standards and they're all following it. Question number five comes from Kay and uh, from Wisconsin. I would love your input on a situation I encountered today. Doing a hive inspection and I found multiple capped queen cells in one of the hives. It is early September. I tried to find the queen to do a split and prevent the swarm that is to come but was unsuccessful. I would like to know what you would recommend in this situation when you cannot find the queen. There are capped queen cells and it is early September. Make a split anyways, let them swarm and then try to capture. This happened to me in July and it was stressful. It was a stressful event and would prefer not to repeat. Something else? I know it is possible that I already missed this worm and just finding the aftermath now, but I don't think that's the case. They were in a single deep with a slatted rack below with two medium supers on top that they were working on drawing out and then a full medium honey super on top of that. New five frame nuke this June. Okay, so here's the thing. The first question that we have to find out when you find queen cells, for example, and whether should you even continue hunting for the queen? Um, 
do you have eggs? If the queen is still laying eggs, if you find eggs, that means she's been there for three days within the last three days and have produced eggs. Uh, because this is not a laying worker situation, we have queen cells in there. So the pheromones are good. This is a colony that is replacing their queen. So finding the queen is a good angle, but one of the ways that you might find out if the queen's potentially departed is if there's no eggs around, in fact, no really young larvae in there, uh, then very good chance your queen has already departed. So that part would be done and there wouldn't be much that you could do about it after that. So the other thing is a lot of people want to destroy queen cells when they find them. I don't do that. And that's because if they, they tend to get a mindset, a collective mindset, and once they've decided that they're going to get rid of uh, their queen, they pretty much do it. And uh, they'll even turn on the queen. If, if she can't get out of there, they'll attack the queen and run her off. Now, if they generate a swarm, you could lose a population of your hive with them. So if it's out of your control and you can't find the queen, then there's not a lot you can do other than let things play out. So I wouldn't go around smashing uh, queen cells and things like that. I would let them... Um, I would let them go and uh, see what they do. I know it's late in the year. That's a colony that you would be looking for if they're replacing the queen. Uh, once those queens hatch out, within two weeks, they should be laying. And now we're into October before you would see new brood from them. So that's a colony you're just going to have to watch. Sounds like it's got a lot of space on it also. And because uh, we've got the deep and then we've got two mediums, you said, and then another box on top of that. So this is a large hive. Um, you're just going to have to, I'm sorry to say, wait and figure that out. But if you've got eggs in there still, I would get back in there and find the queen. And I would collect that queen as insurance. I would put her, since they came as a nuke, hopefully you've got the nuke box. And hopefully it was a quality box, like a wooden one, that you can use over and over for years to come as a resource hive. So if I could find the queen, I would pull her in a couple of frames of brood and resources, put her in that nucleus box as an insurance policy for when those queens hatch out to make sure that they come back and get mated. And if not, you've got a laying queen handy that you could put right back in when they fail, if they fail. So I wish I had more to say about that, but that's my only fix. And I'd like to know, so for those of you that write in with questions like that, always look for eggs. Look for evidence of the queen. Uh, much easier to find that than it is to find the queen herself. If she's a shy queen that hides and scoots around frames and stuff like that. So question number six comes from Brian from Denver, Colorado. It says, I previously thought that honeybees are not defensive of resources. However, I often see aggressive behavior on a bird bath I have set up as a watering station for bees. The aggressive behavior usually is in the form of one bee biting the leg of another. This goes on for a minute or two until the bite E escapes. Do you have any thoughts about this scenario? I do have a short video of this behavior. Well, thanks for the offer of the video. Don't need it because I see this common. Uh, it's a common behavior. So you even see it on landing boards. You'll see a guard bee or several other bees a bee lands, this bee could have pollen and resources on it, and they go from stopping to do that checkpoint, just like going through TSA, and next thing you know, they're biting the legs and getting pretty aggressive, and they'll even bite and hold on to that bee. And then the bee struggles a little bit, but there are some things I notice here. So no matter where this occurs, 
I notice that the bee that's getting bitten by the other bee with those mandibles uh, doesn't seem to fight back. So it doesn't really seem like it's a real fight, in other words. So the guard bee or the aggressor in this case bites and holds on, but they don't bite parts off. So for example, what parts of the bee, if they were really trying to injure another bee, what parts would they be able to inflict harm on? So they can bite their wings and damage those. That's fairly easy for bees to do. The other thing is when they're really going at it, they bite the antennae of one another because that's another part that they can easily damage. But they don't. They bite the feet. They bite the legs. And uh, they even bite at their hair sometimes. So I don't have a definitive answer for that other than that it's interesting to me that the bee that's being bitten puts up with it. They try to fly away. They pull back a little bit. Or sometimes they just sit there and let themselves get bitten, which is funny. So the next part of that is one of the ways that guard bees or other workers inside a hive have to pass on pheromones is often when they bite and hold on to another bee, they can pass on their pheromones. So we don't know on a second level, there may be something else going on there. And I'm not saying conclusively that that's what it is, but I just want to open the thought line that maybe when they're biting and holding onto that bee, we see it as aggression, they might be tagging the bee, pheromone-wise. So I don't know. If you look really close at their little, their little mandibles, thus they have all these little hairs on them and everything else. So when they work things with their mandibles sometimes, we may see it as aggression, but they also don't go to stinging one another. If they were serious and they were really trying to hurt each other, like this morning, I went out, I thought uh, a colony was swarming, but there was just a lot of activity and there were a lot of drones coming back, which tells me, I think, that a mated queen is returning and a lot of drones are following her back. And uh, some of those are getting an unwelcome reception. So some of the bees were actively stinging drones and they're getting rid of them. So they can sting other bees without losing their stingers and without dying. And there were a bunch of dead drones on the ground in front of that hive, so they're not welcome. So when bees want to take it to another level and they really want to inflict injury, they do it with their stingers as well as their mandibles. So I think there's something less dramatic going on that I don't know about. And if you know about it, if they're passing on a pheromone or if they're marking that bee, we've all seen this behavior, I think, if you spend a lot of time watching bees. Um, it's interesting to me that the one that's the recipient of that, what we think is aggression, is not resisting it. They do like fly away eventually. I don't think they like it, but they don't fight back and uh, they're not being stung. They're not being killed and they're not being profoundly injured. So interesting observation. There's room for learning more on that one. So question number seven. This comes from Miles, New Boston, Illinois. Now an issue, let's see. Now an issue I just experienced that I am not quite sure what to do about on Tuesday, September 6th. My daughter informed me of a small swarm, about softball size, in one of our apple trees with lots of activity outside of my hive of Italian bees. By the time I got home from work, three hours later, the swarm was gone. This hive has a massive population, two deep brood boxes, one super about 60% capped, honey, and another super about 25% drawn comb on new frames. Given the dearth we've been in, there hasn't been much progress in the supers for the last month or so, and I did a full inspection today, September 7th. 
on the hive and found plenty of cells ready for eggs. Lots of brood at all stages and just a few eggs scattered across about six frames. Plenty of room for the queen I also found. So we found the queen and we saw eggs. Okay. So it says four capped queen cells in the middle of a couple of frames. That's key. They have capped queen cells. Okay, and I suspect, similar to your recent swarm video, an injured or failing queen. So she never joined the swarm and they just went back to the hive, though I can't be sure. I would have thought there wouldn't be any eggs if that was the case, but there were not very many. This hive was purchased this spring as an established hive, so I'm not sure how old the queen was. I have two other hives, and all three have good populations of drones. Is there any chance this late in the year, one of those new queens can make her mating flight in time? I don't know when they were capped, so I can't be sure of where the new ones are in the cycle. I have access to a local beekeeper that raises mated queens, so should I go that route? I'm just not sure what to do to make sure the hive is queen right in time for winter. Our weather is quite similar to yours. Also, what do I do with the supers that are not ready for extraction, but uh, a fair bit of honey and nectar in them? Okay, so the first part of this, you found the queen, catch her. Put her in a nucleus hive. And uh, because that's your insurance policy, here's what's going to happen to a lot of backyard beekeepers this time of year. They're going to get these late season September swarms. It happens. And, and it can happen even though there's space. All the things that you described here, there's space for them to expand. But for some reason, there's environmental cues coming in. They have resources, nectar and pollen, and they're in a building state. Uh, so they could swarm. They just do it. I get September swarms every single year. Now, here's the advantage you have, hopefully still, is to collect that queen and put her in a nucleus box with a couple of frames of uh, brood and resources. That way, if two to three weeks down the road, they fail to produce a laying queen and become queenless, this is what's going to happen to a lot of backyard beekeepers. Colonies are going to go queenless and you're gonna to be too late for them to be replaced. And then their numbers, they can seem strong. The population seems high, but in the absence of a laying queen at the end of September, they're just going to die out through attrition during winter until in the spring you find this little cluster of bees all huddled together instead of the thousands that you expected and no evidence of winter brood. Um, so by having a nucleus hive, this is why I'm trying to press this on all the people that are listening to me that are backyard beekeepers. Uh, I should have done this myself years ago, which is buy those wooden nucleus five frame boxes. They're deeps have them on a rack somewhere near your bee yard and uh, have frames in them ready to go. It doesn't have to be drawn comb, but you know, heavy wax foundation and so forth and have those ready so that when you find a situation similar to this, you know, they're going to go, they're making those queen cells. There's not a lot you're going to do about that. I don't recommend smashing a bunch of queen cells and forcing them to keep the queen. She could still leave and they could be queenless. So if you put them in these boxes, if you have nucleus boxes handy, you can store your queen in there, and then if they fail, you have the opportunity to return her with the brood that you took out right back into the original colony. They're related. You're going to accept that introduction again in the absence of a queen, and you're going to be queen right 
going into October. So it's an insurance policy. Now on the flip side of that, you put her in that box, you put her in there with the brood, and they hatch those uh, replacement queens. One of them flies, gets mated, comes back, and is producing. Now you have a backup resource in that small nucleus hive, and I've had single deep five frame nucleus hives make it through winter. So uh, insurance policy, you were gonna lose that queen anyway. She was going. So by creating this insurance nuke, uh, you, don't, you don't risk losing your primary colony. That's what you're trying to ensure, not so much trying to preserve a nucleus of small, uh, small line of bees there. So that's what I say on that. Get back in there, get that queen. Question number eight, Andrew from New Hudson, Michigan. Let's see what's going on here. After not checking on my hives for a couple of weeks, I did an inspection on Saturday, September the 3rd. I found my marked queen, made it in June this year, good performer. A lot of brood in all stages and three capped queen cells. This is happening everywhere. There's also one capped queen cell with larvae in it, one uncapped queen cell with larvae in it. Because I live in Michigan, I was disheartened that they were going to swarm this late because I don't currently have any spare hives to even try to save them with a split. After thinking it over, I decided on the following Monday that I would cage the queen in the hive, destroy all the queen cells, and hope that their swarming would fail with no queen and all the bees would return to the hive with the weather cooling down. I thought if I could keep them there long enough, the urge to swarm would pass. When I got into the hive, I found the queen and used a push-in cage to trap her. I then went to the frame that had the queen cells, and, and I found that all three capped cells had been opened from the side and were empty. The cell that was uncapped and had a larva in it was now empty and dry. It is now Wednesday, and I haven't been keeping a close eye on that hive for swarming behavior, but the landing board behavior has very normal. I thought with capped cells, the swarming urge would have to go, would have been too strong to stop. But since all three capped queen cells were open from the sides, I don't think the virgin emerged and killed other queens, but rather the resident queen. The workers would have done it. Did I get lucky in the colony? Okay. So this actually happens from time to time. Caging your queen in your hive uh, with emerging queens in there is risky business for the caged queen. Uh, that's because they can show a preference for the emerging queens and if they come out at that time, they can sting your queen right through the cage. Now, so for me, much better to do that. I know you don't have the space or resources. That's why I fall back on we need nukes available. You always need to have those. They're inexpensive. They last basically forever. Good to have. But the caging, and then the idea, I have seen this too, where it looked like they're building queen cells. It looked like we're kind of doomed. They're going to supersede. They're going to get rid of the existing queen, or they're going to be swarm cells along the periphery of your brood frames, and they're going to just replace the queen and swarm. Um, it looks like your bees luckily changed their minds, and they can. And I've seen it before where we had a whole bunch of queen cells, and within a week you inspect and they're all gone. And no evidence of a swarm. So that what they did is decided to keep their existing queen, or as you, you speculated in this question here, 
is that the temperature or the cues in the environment may have been altered in such a way that they even decided it was too late and they decided to keep their queen. You prevented the queen from leaving, so her pheromone remains strong. A mated laying queen has a stronger mandibular pheromone than those virgin queens that might emerge also. So I think they chewed those. Uh, it's amazing too, because they remove almost all evidence that those queen cells were there and you just see clumps of beeswax because they don't get rid of the wax. They keep it in a clump there, but they have chewed away and moved the wax around and bonded it to the edges of your frames usually. So I think you're in good shape. Update us later to see if they build more queen cells. And this is one way, by the way, that marking your queens helps. I marked a whole bunch of queens last year. I did not mark queens this year. But uh, what that did when you mark the queens was really showed me how frequently your queens are being replaced without us even noticing. Um, and that's because it's kind of a quick, smooth transition. Uh, if you're not inspecting every couple of weeks, the inspection routine should be every two to three weeks, usually when a lot of things are going on. And uh, during a nectar flow, we don't do inspections because we're trying not to disrupt them. They're, they're right now uh, capping honey, they're expanding, and uh, they're storing as much nectar as they possibly can. So the buildup, this is not a time to be doing inspections unless you notice something's wrong with your colony. But um, we don't always notice that they've produced new queens, that there's been a swarm, that they can emit thousands of bees in a swarm. And then, you know, to our eyes, we look at it and the frames are still covered with bees. They have more than enough to handle what's going on inside the hive to cover their eusocial behavior, all this division of labor all going on at once, plenty of workers, plenty of nurse bees, the brood frames are not abandoned, they're covered, the brood patterns are okay. And uh, so finding them reestablishing the brood right away within a couple of weeks, laying queen, and now we've got a young queen going through winter. So they do it, it happens fast, it's amazing sometimes. There are a lot of, uh, People that put out absolute time frames for when a newly emerged queen, a virgin queen, uh, some people say you're three weeks out from her laying eggs. Some people say 12 days. Some people say she doesn't mature for nine. And uh, for me, I've seen a queen cell show that it's hatched and I've had eggs laying within 12 days. So these numbers um, can sometimes be in flux and maybe some lines of queens actually produce eggs quicker or mature faster and then fly out and get their mating done and come back quicker than others do. Some may take three weeks, some might do it in 12 days. So it's really interesting. And this is why record keeping is really important too, because we'll note things like that. Even uh, when you're, we're not breeders, we don't have hundreds of hives uh, that we could set up a breeding program and selectively do genetics and things like that. We're always at the mercy of whatever drones our queens are interacting with. But it's cool to keep records of specific hives to see uh, what their behavior is and what they're doing. And uh, recycling within your own area. And hopefully sending your drones out and getting your genetics kind of back a few generations separated as you start to seed the area with your genetics. But unless you have hundreds of hives, um, your chances of having a really powerful impact on uh, genetics in your area are very low. But uh, it is amazing how quickly they can turn around and fool us. Question number nine, Chris Caldwell. Number one, do foragers and workers from other hives then 
modify their pheromone scent. In other words, this is related to, I did an Apami uh, beehive, kind of an opening review, putting it together, I'm evaluating it. And uh, so if you haven't seen that video, it's probably worth looking at. I think it's good to know about other hives, whether we plan to use them or not, but uh, having information doesn't fail. So um, sometimes when you've replaced a queen or if I used queen mandibular pheromone, let's say I pull in bees from uh, other colonies and I do that with queen mandibular pheromone. It's a synthetic that I buy from Better Bee. It comes from somewhere else, they don't produce it. And there is little kind of translucent green noodles. They come with zip ties. There's two in a pack and they're only $5. So what I do, I do a lot of different things with them, but they have educated me regarding what honeybees do when they're out and about and how they can actually be prone to join up with an unfamiliar swarm of bees. So we know that when the bees fly out, they bivouac and they land on a tree nearby. And while they're there, their scouts are going out. They're trying to find a final cavity to move into. But what I've learned with queen mandibular pheromone, a synthetic, there's no queen, it imitates a queen. So, and that's not its intended purpose, but I find ways to test things out that are not necessarily as described. I'm just fooling with the bees. I'm just trying to see what they do. So they gather on branches where I zip tie queen mandibular pheromone. There's no queen there. You end up with a good sized cluster, in some cases a pound or more. And what I did was uh, with that pheromone, I took that for example in my failing queen for nucleus hive number 15. So it's another video, they were kicking out the queen, she had torn and chewed wings, and she was not going to make it on her own, so I just ditch effort, put her into a hive that she didn't even want to go into. She ultimately stayed there. And I got bees to work in. Now, where do I get bees to support that queen? So I thought, hmm, I have all these bees on this tree branch over here that gathered around this queen mandibular pheromone. So I took that branch and I clipped it with my pruners and I took off the queen mandibular pheromone and I put that back in a Ziploc baggie and put it right back in the freezer. And because it, it's a weak pheromone by now, but it still works. And I took that branch and I laid it on the landing board of the nuke box where I put the injured queen. They have nothing to do with that queen. And they all went in to that hive and claimed the queen and supported her. So this got me thinking, there's a lot more going on here. In other words, when we see a swarm, and uh, this has many levels, by the way, but when we see a swarm of bees, all the bees that cluster around that queen are not necessarily her bees from her colony that she swarmed out of. These are bees that just happen to be flying around. They're not in swarm mode or anything else. And they have a tendency to just join this bivouac of bees. Who knows why they do it? They have nothing to do with her. And in swarm mode, these bees that are out on a tree branch or a fence post or wherever they are, because they've also done it on the hand railing of my way to be academy building unintentionally. I just had the QMP noodles. I left one on the railing overnight. In the morning I came out, ah, there's a swarm. And then I thought, oh yeah, I laid that QMP noodle there. And look, I've collected all these bees on the railing. So I just took the noodle out, put it in a Ziploc baggie, got rid of it, and all those bees dispersed and went back to their hives. 
But this leads me to another level. We can fortify a weak colony of bees if you live in proximity to a lot of hives. We have 27 colonies of bees here. So when I put that on a tree branch or something, they collect a bunch of them. After they've been on that branch for two or three days, they're willing to go into any hive that they find themselves in close proximity with. So I can now fortify a weaker colony with a workforce. And guess what? They don't even fight them off at the entrance. They just go in and they're there to help. No fighting. So this is why this question came up when I was doing the um, APAME because there was a swarm and I collected the swarm and I find that bees just join swarms. They say, oh, there's a party. Let's go and join it. I don't know why they do it. But this leads me to another thought line. Sometimes people will receive a queen in the mail and they'll go to install that queen in a hive or they get a package. When you get a package of bees, the queen is there. She's in that package too. She's in her queen cage and they have to control the time that they release the queen even with those bees because they're unfamiliar. That package was made by shaking a bunch of bees into a package and then they take the queen over here who's been mated in her cage and they put her in with them and then on their trip they're feeding and caring for that queen so they're through direct contact spreading her pheromone so that they will stay with that queen when you ultimately put her in your hive box. So sometimes people go to open the queen and they try to do a direct release without realizing whether those bees even water. She's been out of lay for a while because she hasn't had access to comb, therefore she's light enough to fly. So you're in jeopardy of losing your queen. Off goes the queen. She just flew away. Now, miracle of miracles, sometimes that queen just shows up back at the hive and everything is good and everybody's like, whew, you know, emergency averted. But what I think can happen too is a queen flies off, lands on a random tree somewhere, and if she's in close proximity to a bunch of other colonies of bees, she will attract bees that are not related to her and they will cluster around a queen that they are not related to. Foraging bees can all of a sudden change their mind, knock home, and end up landing at another colony. We know they do that. It's called bee drift. So they also, when they're flying around, can smell a queen pheromone, synthetic or from a real queen, and just, oh, join up. And then we start to build this cluster around a queen. You can keep a queen in her queen cage that you buy in the mail. And instead of introducing her with your package, if it's just the queen, you can actually, she has attendance with her. You can do a test. This is a total risk, by the way. So unless you're willing to lose everything, don't do this. But if you want to test the theory, take the queen in her cage and put her in a protected overhang somewhere on a tree branch where you can reach her and see how many bees collect around that queen and you'll form a cluster and you get extra bees. It's super interesting. So ultimately these workers through direct contact with this queen or this mandibular pheromone lure, um, they will all transmit her pheromone to one another and then they become a fellowship associated with that queen through the pheromone bond that comes from her. Interesting stuff. So yes, ultimately, do the foragers and workers from other eyes then modify their pheromone scent? Well, first of all, it's not their pheromone scent. It's a scent that they've derived from the queen that they've been with. So, and colonies that don't have queens, queen lost colonies, 
so it's a queenless, they're not queen right, they're probably the easiest to lure away and get them to join another queen somewhere. In fact, I think part of the reason that these colonies that are queenless lose their numbers so quick during times of year when they can fly is because they just don't go home. There's no reason to go home. So they end up going on the landing boards of other uh, hives nearby. And the more hives there are nearby, the more potential there is for that to happen until the numbers just dwindle to almost nothing. It's also why colonies that go queenless this time of year end up getting robbed out. They have no heart to defend the colony and resources. So they just end up being robbed. They don't have the, the binding pheromone that keeps them there. So, which by the way, I might as well mention this, the reason for the queen mandibular pheromone, the synthetic that you buy that I get from Better Bee, um, we find a queenless colony. We don't want there to be laying workers. So what we do then is we take one of these queen mandibular pheromone noodles, we put it inside the hive and we secure it to the frames that have that did have brood before they lost their queen. That way the bees that are there are still bonded now to the synthetic queen, this fake queen, and they continue to work the hive as if the queen were present. That buys you time to bring in a new mated queen that's in lay. And then before she arrives, 24 hours ahead or whatever, that's when you take away the queen mandibular pheromone, install the new queen, and then voila, there you go, she's there. And I think that keeps resident bees also from defecting and departing from that colony. So there you go, QMP, many uses. The second part here from Chris is, isn't part of the activity at the prior hive undergoing a swarm is a direction dance to the bivouac? No. So here's the thing. This is, maybe the wording is complicated for people, but the question here is, we know that when the bees are about to depart from their hive, with their queen, when they're gonna swarm, they're getting rid of the existing queen. When they leave, they bivouac local to the hive that they've departed from. So it's not like they fly a mile and then hang on a tree post, on a tree or a lamp post or a, you know, a fence or something like that. They move like for me, they're moving 80 feet, 50 feet, 40 feet, and they're collecting. They use the same trees over and over again. So. The waggle dancing and stuff that they're doing inside the hive then, uh, before they do that, does not direct them to that tree. This is also why they're so fickle when they fly out and they can start to gather on one branch, but then more of them gather on another branch and they start to move to that branch. So they're not waggle dancing. By the way, something that is so close would not even result in a waggle. It results in something, now this is a division of scientists and entomologists that decide what this dance means. In other words, is there something called a round dance? The round dance, the bee literally does a loop and then goes left, does a loop, and then goes right, does a loop, so clockwise, counterclockwise, with no waggling. In other words, no distance of travel, really. So they do this loop. So the round dance is really a waggle dance with no waggle, just a, a simple direction. But they don't have to do that to go to the tree or the, you know, whatever they're going to, the bush, wherever they're going to land, because they just follow each other's pheromones for that. This is why when they get there, their abdomens go up, the nasonoff gland gets exposed, and they start fanning like crazy. So the bees that are in the air, 
doing these loops everywhere, fly through that pheromone stream, and then glom on to wherever they've gathered. And the queen herself also follows that pheromone and goes straight to the cluster. So when they cluster, they're not clustering because the queen got there first. They're clustering first, and then they're sending out that pheromone, and when the queen, zip, queen zips out, she lands there. How do I know that? Because I have video of when the queen departs, and the swarm had already started collecting on the branch. So they've decided that, and they're there before the queen, in some cases, ever left the hive. And then she finds them and joins them. And then that reinforces the pheromone connection that they have. And that's why once the queen is there, they start clustering tighter and tighter, and you don't see a lot of activity on that bivouac location of them searching for the queen, which is their pheromone source. So they will do that for a while, giving her an opportunity to join them. But if she doesn't show up, they break cluster and they fly back to the hive that they came from, which was probably a tie-in for one of the questions here we had earlier where they saw the swarm in the apple tree, but then they left and the queen was still in the original hive. So in the absence of the queen, they're only going to bivouac for so long and they can't find her and she doesn't join them. They go back. So the waggle dance that they're doing, they've been scouting their final destination before they even swarm. So that's why a lot of people wonder, well, why do they even bother bivouacking? Why do they get out and cluster and then go to the final destination? There's a lot of things about bees we don't know. So when they depart the hive, they have to go to an intermediate bivouac, bivouac, and that gets them, their queen, away from the soon-to-emerge queen. So they have to leave. This is why sometimes they can come back, but they won't re-enter the hive. They'll just cluster on the front of it. That's a whole different story. But the, the dances that they do, the waggle dances that they're doing, are in regards to the final destination, which is a cavity that they hope to occupy. But so for the bivouac, the intermediate, that's pheromone streams. They follow pheromones to get with each other. That's why swarms are always swirling all over and it's an ever widening circle until they follow each other. So even when they're moving across a field, they're swarming out in all these different directions. And then we have streaker bees that zip through the center that know where they're going. And that's when they've left the bivouac and they're on their way to the final destination. Those scouts that have been there, and there's multiples of them that know where they're headed, they not only have done the waggle dance before they take off, but on their way there, they fly beelines. They circle back and fly beelines through that swarm that's on its way to its final destination to make sure that they're on track and following that course. Very interesting stuff. So, a lot to talk about today. Answers are not as simple as one might think. Question number 10 comes from Tony, Union, Washington. I'm a new beekeeper living in Washington State, zone 8B. I have two hives and one is a split from the original. The hive that is newest is in a 10-frame hive. The bees have filled out 7.5 frames so far. Two of the frames are honey. Five frames are brood, pollen, and bee bread. The last half finished frame is on the outside of one of the honey frames. Should I add a medium super, no drawn comb, to the hive or perhaps trade places with one frame of honey and one empty frame? When I inspected the hive yesterday, there were no queen cells and I did see eggs. 
The main concern is that the hive will swarm late in the year. Do you think the hive will survive winter and not swarm this fall? Your thoughts are most appreciated. Okay, so now see, this is Washington State. This is a region well away from where I am. I'm a zone ag four, by the way, so this is much warmer than I am. So this really hinges on what resources are there, how long your nectar flow runs, and when they're gonna be bringing resources in. So I usually would say, if you have eight out of 10 frames full or, or in production, in progress of being completed, then I would put a super on to make sure they have the extra space. So I don't know, you know, if you're ending your nectar flow or if you're beginning. Now as a minimum, here's what I would do. Because we know one of the triggers is congestion inside the hive for swarming, right? So we have um, to, to do, to do, to do, 2.5 frames that are still available. Okay, so what I would do, so here are, you've got five frames of combination brood and uh, you've got bee bread, which is just for those who don't know, it's pollen that's fermenting, that's becoming a resource for the nurse bees to feed the developing larvae. So we've got five of those frames and then we've got honey frames adjacent to those. So here's what you do. Here's the brood, brood frames right here. You take the last brood frame that's up against one of your honey frames, pull the honey frame, move it to the outside, take that frame that's on the outside that is not yet drawn out and move it right up against your outer frame of brood and then sandwich that between your capped honey. So we don't disrupt those frames of brood, that's very important. And then, but what we do do is provide them a space adjacent to the brood for them to store their resources and expand brood even if they wanted to. So the thing is, I think you're actually in good shape. And if you're in an area where you can check up on them frequently, like if you can find out, are they continuing to expand? Are they just status quo? Or are they actually contracting their resources? That's what would trigger you to put on your next super. And so if you've got a heavy nectar flow still ahead, put the super on, you have nothing to lose. So uh, I do know for those of you who are thinking about this and maybe you're in my area and your hive is kind of full and we're in the goldenrod right now, should you put on a super and would they draw comb? Here's what we have a problem with at the end of the year is getting bees stimulated to draw new comb. And this is where storing frames that have drawn comb that's ready to work, that is much better to put directly over your cluster, your brood frames, so they can get right up and start working those and storing resources without drawing the comb. I find that at the end of the year, they're kind of resistant to making new comb but they will use and it can reduce the congestion if you provide frames of drawn comb. And if you don't have it, if you're a new beekeeper and you don't have frames like that, there's something called better comb. And it is a synthetic comb that your bees will use to store nectar and pollen and things like that. And once it's been cleaned and used by the bees for a while, they will also use it to move brood into. So better comb is kind of your best thing to put in when you don't have drawn foundation and you want to provide them immediate extra space for their resources near the end of the year when they otherwise won't make their own. So those are a couple of options, but I think um, you're probably gonna be okay. But it really hinges upon, talk to other beekeepers in the area and find out when the nectar flow usually ends. When do they harvest all their honey and when are they looking at just sustaining what your bees have to get them ready for winter.
But a zone eight, they probably don't have a very heavy winter either. So activity is probably pretty good year round. Uh, question number 11 comes from Pete from uh, Somerset, Wisconsin. I have a question about requeening a hive. I have several small five frame resource hives. Yes, I hope everybody keeps resource nucleus size hives around. And that uh, I've created and all are doing well. I'd like to requeen some of the larger production hives. And what is your opinion on the best way to accomplish this? I know that I could just catch the queen from the resource hive and introduce her via a queen cage once I remove the old queen from the production hive. However, I was wondering if I could remove the old queen and then insert the new queen with a couple of frames of brood and nurse bees directly from the resource hive. Basically, I'm asking if direct release like this would work or would the larger hive just find the new queen and kill her? Okay, so we need to create a queenless cycle first because, by the way, how long does it take for those workers in the current resident colony to realize they've lost their queen? Their behavior, based on those who stare at bees for long periods of time and see the changes in their behavior, how soon do they react when the queen's pheromone is lost? It's within like 15 or 20 minutes. So when you remove the existing queen, hopefully she's going to be banked somewhere safe as an insurance policy, um, they do notice that their queen is missing. So they actively look around because there's a retinue of bees in there. There's a bunch of nurse bees, their entire job is to feed, groom, and care for the queen, including removing her waste material. And also they're involved in cleaning and preparing cells for the queen to lay her eggs. If she's suddenly absent, they're all, all of a sudden unbalanced a little bit. Where did she go? We don't have a job anymore. So they do notice right away. And it's this retinue of nurse bees that's around the queen that is gathering her pheromone and constantly disseminating that through the colony, through direct contact. So once again, these pheromones, that source of pheromone has gone. So I would say if you can get her out of there for 24 hours, they would definitely know that their queen pheromone is absent, their behavior would start to be altered, and you could then introduce the queen that you want to put in there from your resource hive with a frame of brood, which enhances her pheromone because the nurse bees that are on that brood frame and that open larvae will all have her pheromone. And so now you're introducing the new queen with an overwhelming presence of her pheromone. And I think that works really good 24 hours after removal of the other queen. You could risk it. You could take a chance. If you're just trying to, if you want to play around, you could do it within an hour or two but I would recommend waiting 24 hours in that scenario when we're not just introducing a queen, but bringing her in with brood. That's an overwhelming uh, introduction and they tend to accept that. I've also had laying workers abandon their laying activity when I brought in an overwhelming introduction of brood with a queen. Two frames of brood, open, capped, everything else with a queen who's in lay, moved into a colony that had laying workers and they overwhelmed that colony right away and took it over and the laying workers did not put up a fight. So, and again, that's a total gamble when you do that, but those are things that I do just to see what will happen. And when it's successful, it's a pleasant surprise. And now you have another tool in your 
reproductive tool belt when you're trying to reconcile a hive that either has laying workers or no queen or you want to replace a queen yourself. So give it 24 hours and do what you just described and then don't forget to update us on how it went. I think it's going to go great. And now we're at the final question which is really just a shout out. And we're going to talk about other things too because we're in the fluff part but this is from the YouTube channel is Brother Michael. And it says, since you liked Kiss the Ground. Now that's a shout out that we gave that talked about uh, how agriculture is helping what's going on and not having monocultural uh, situations, monocrops. So soy and corn, that's what a lot of people are committed to. So Kiss the Ground, I gave a shout out about that. But it says here, and this is from Brother Michael, I recommended, I recommend more resources from some of the folks that the documentary highlighted. Gabe Brown wrote the book, Dirt to Soil, and has many YouTube videos, okay? So I'm gonna jump ahead again. The shout out that I'm gonna give today is so that you can follow up on this kind of agricultural, healthy agriculture so that we can have more native pollinators and things like that. So it's a YouTube called Pollinator Strips with Eric. So if you wanna look that up and just go to it, I'll have to look it up. I have to confess, I haven't even looked at it yet. But I'm trusting Brother Michael here because he liked my shout out for Kiss the Ground. I'm thinking this is along the same line. Often when I send you uh, to someone else to check out, it doesn't mean that I totally agree with their philosophy or even their approach to beekeeping if it's a beekeeper. Uh, sometimes it's a young person or a beginner that I want you to kind of give your support to because uh, I count on people growing and progressing as they continue with beekeeping. And uh, also sometimes, like I sent you to the video that came from um, the National Honey Show, which had a guy that is flat out against backyard beekeeping or beekeeping at all. I was amazed that they put that guy up. But when I sent you there, it doesn't mean I agree with him. It doesn't mean I disagree with him. What I'm doing is sending you places so that you'll have broadened understanding. Um, these days we tend to polarize and decide, I don't like that. And then I don't do it. I'm not talking to that people. You know, they, they keep hives in bubbles under the ocean. I don't approve. But here's the thing. Um, I think it's worthwhile for you to have knowledge of these different practices in agriculture, knowledge of different methods of beekeeping. And this helps you formulate your own position in beekeeping and why you chose the path that you did in keeping your bees. And that can be the hive design that you use, the way you configure it, whether you're treatment free or whether you decided to use treatments. By opening your mind and looking at all of these other methods and considering these other opinions from hopefully educated people, uh, then it helps you again create your own method of keeping honeybees. If you just close the door and plug your ears and la 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 your way out um, we really don't know why we might be disagreeing with something other than it's not the way I'm doing it. I'm doing it this way and I'm going to continue to do it this way. There is some benefit to figuring out if your way is working, but knowledge does not hurt you. So understanding someone's counterpoint to your current path is not necessarily a bad thing. It'll better help you develop why you do what you do and you'll be able to explain it to people like that. Who knows? You might win them over eventually if communication channels remain open. So I hope that that works. 
Um, so in the opening, the picture, the thumbnail today is, are you being robbed? This is very important. And uh, the reason I say that is because I went out, I thought I had a swarm going. This is like just before I came in to do this Q&A today. Uh, lots of noise. And then I looked at the hive and I thought they were being robbed. So it went from, are they swarming? No, they're being robbed. And then I ran around like crazy to get all of my robbing screens together so I could go ahead and close it up, stop them from being robbed. But then I calmed down. I settled down and I got myself a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. No matter how hot it is, I drink coffee. So anyway, I looked them over and I thought, oh, they're not being robbed. Why is it so noisy? There are drones everywhere. So the drones are coming in. And again, as I mentioned many videos back, it's my hypothesis that when a queen goes out after they have swarmed out and replaced the queen, when the new queen goes out and she gets mated at the drone congregation area, which can be miles away, we don't know where it is. When she comes back, I think that drones follow her back and you get these unfamiliar drones that just show up at the landing board of whatever hive she came from. They get fed. They go in there and they, they harass all the nurse bees to feed them. And then within an hour, they leave. And this is the one I described where they're singing the drones and killing them and they don't want to feed them. But uh, so again, that's not validated you know, by a bunch of people. I don't have an entomologist to say, Fred's right. They do follow that queen back, even though she's been mated. They have no more opportunity to mate with her, but they were bored at the drone congregation area and she brought the party home because hundreds of drones pile into a hive. And every time that I've seen this happen, within a week, that colony has eggs. When before, they did not. So something happened and when that queen got mated, she came back, all these drones are with her, and again, they don't stick around. I think they get fed, and then the party's over and they leave. Some people speculate, oh, they're mating with the queen in there. No, the queen has to mate on the wing. That we know for sure. But the question is, are they following her pheromone back home? I think they are. But robbing is a high potential this time of year. So I wanna to talk to you about several things. I had these, like they're different colors. That's made by Cirocell. So these are first things I grabbed. And guess what? I was gonna put it on a 10 frame Langstroth landing board and these are too long. So you have to like clip off one of the ends and they come with screws. See how thick that is? And then you put this on the front of your hive, flip one of these up and this is how your bees come and go through here. Lots of ventilation through the front, lots of ventilation through the bottom and we stop a robbing event. Now, you don't want to have to run around like a chicken with your head cut off and uh, stop a robbing event actively happening because now you really have an uphill climb. So what I actually did was when I got wood and I reduced the entrance on that particular colony that had all the drones streaming into it, so now they're down to a two inch opening. This time of year, I need that. I don't want anybody to get robbed. So the other thing I put up is, these are things that help you with robbing. So, Cirocell, is it Cirocell? It better be. Cirocell Beast Blocker, it's called. Cirocell is C-E-R-A-C-E-L-L, -L, and they have a whole bunch of them. They're all color-coded, so they help your bees orient. So anyway, those are the new ones. 
These are things that stop robbing, but also benefit your hive. So we have the hive gate, which is by BIQ Solutions. They're sold at Better Bee. And then we have the old standard that everybody should have, and I've recommended these for years. This is a robbing screen. These are considered robbing screens too. This is by BeSmart Designs. It's ready to go. It has the pins in it. All you have to do is pull those out, pin this to the front of the hive. This does fit out of the box, ready to go, right on your landing board. And then you open the top and your bees, the resident bees can come and go through here. The back of it is nice and textured. The bees get their footing on it. It is also vented. There's screen holes on it. And uh, there's a newer version that actually has pins that lets you use this as a mouse guard as well. But robbing screens, you can't order them when you go outside and find that your hive is being robbed. So we need robbing screens in your kit ready to go. You can't have too many of them. I'm going to be preachy on that because it is a terrible thing when you hear what you think is a swarm, but instead you get there and your colony is being robbed. If you don't have a robbing screen ready to go, you can do nothing about it except reduce the entrance. Now, another thing that you can do, which I happen to like because I don't feel bad for the bees that are doing the robbing. Usually it's a big, strong colony. You can get your powdered sugar. I have a little, what I have is a confectioner's sugar. It's a little, it looks like an ice cream scoop. So you scoop it in powdered sugar, close it up. It's full of holes. And when a colony is being robbed, you can shake that sugar all over those bees. Keep shaking it on them. We don't care. They get annoyed. They fly away right away and see where they go. And when they fly over 50 feet to another hive that you own, and you can see that those robbers are coming from and going to that hive, usually it's just one big strong colony. You go over there, you take one of your robin screens and you close them up. They already have too much anyway. And it's always, it never fails. It's one of your strongest colonies that does the robbing. They have the most bees to send out. So I have no qualms about, I think I would use <clears throat> for that because these seem like there's more venting. I would use the Cirrocells, they're brand new this year. But to, I would put this on the colony that's doing the robbing. I would get them under control and I don't care that hundreds of sugar-coated bees are on the front trying to get home with the stuff they just stole from that place and they did not earn those resources. And then later in the day, near the end of the day, I would pop up one of these and let them come and go from their own hive. And meanwhile, that gives me time to get them under control on the hive that was being robbed. Another thing we need to know about the hive that's being robbed, why are they so weak? Why are they being robbed? Is the landing board too open? That could be one of the triggers. Are they queenless? When we look inside, do they have problems? And now we have to fix that hive and in the meantime, Reduce that entrance to two inches by three eighths. And that will give them, just like the hot gates in the movie, the 300, they can uh, defend that easier until you get them fixed. But we don't want them to lose out. Now here's the thing, even when they're overwhelmingly being attacked, it takes many hours to finish robbing out a colony. But the damage is profound because the guard bees are dead. They're dwindling down to nurse bees and everything is just going past them and they can't defend themselves anymore. So if you can find out who it is, 
cover up the colony that's doing the robbing. And in the meantime, now you can get a robbing screen on there because this is the immediate fix while you go and make your alternate entrance reducer and get those entrance reducers down small so that your bees can handle things. That's uh, what was happening right before I came here to do this today. And it made me think I need to talk about robbing because a lot of people are going to do inspections now with all the honey in their hives. And as soon as they pull it off, the minute passerby bees get in there and start tasting that honey, uh, they go right back to their hive and they found honey and they come back with 20, 30, 100, 300, and now they're attacking the hive that you're inspecting. So be aware. Keep your inspections quick and brief and make sure these colonies can defend themselves. That's it for today. That's the fluff. So I want to thank you for watching. Thank you for spending your time with me. If you're not a subscriber, please subscribe and also maybe click the like button so that you'll know that you have seen this video so you don't have to repeat it. So I hope that you have a fantastic weekend and that you're keeping up with your bees in this critical time of year when things are changing fast. Thanks for being here. Have a great weekend.